I would just play these crazy 80s drum beats and then I'd play on top of it. And it was like the coolest thing ever. So it always became this really important thing to me to, and I couldn't describe it in any way professionally at all. I mean, I was just a kid, but I was thinking about this like, I don't know. I, I assume some kids were like super into BMX bikes or something. You know, like this was like my thing. Um, and I think, again, that just really helped push me into that world. Welcome to Audio Branding, the hidden gem of marketing. Sound plays a more important role in human behavior and our decision making than you may realize. In this podcast, I'll help you understand the art and science of sound so you can better influence others in business and your life. I'm your host, Jody Krangle. Let's delve a little deeper. Here's the first part of my conversation with Jack Bradley. My next guest has over 25 years of experience in production across all sides of the business in commercials and film. He unites a passion for music and visual storytelling with excitement for connecting people to his role of CEO and executive producer at Hi-Fi Project. In his over 12 years with the company, he's continued to build a lineup of repeat clients, including ongoing work for top brands such as Progressive and DraftKings, while fortifying Hi-Fi's creative offerings to best suit shifts in the ever-changing industry landscape. And as a lifelong Boston sports fan, he also maintains a unique sense of pride for his work on projects for both the Red Sox and Bruins that earned Emmy Awards. His name is Jack Bradley, and wow, are you in for a treat. If you're interested in hearing about how storytelling plays a part in creating great advertising and how audio helps craft that storytelling, stay tuned. As always, if you have questions for my guest, you're welcome to reach out through the links in the show notes. If you have questions for me, visit audiobrandingpodcast.com, where you'll find a lot of ways to get in touch. You can also join regular Clubhouse chats in the Power of Sound house at 2 p.m. Eastern every Wednesday. Plus, subscribing to the newsletter will let you know when the new podcasts are available and what the newest Clubhouse rooms will be about. And if you're getting some value from listening, the best ways to show your support are to share this podcast with a friend and leave an honest review. And I'd love to feature your review on future podcasts. You can leave one either in written or in voice format from the podcast's main page. I would so appreciate that. And now, here's my conversation with Jack Bradley. Welcome, Jack. It's so great to have you here. I really appreciate your joining me today. I'm happy to be here. Thank you. <laughs> so, uh, well, first of all, I want to ask you if you have an early memory of how sound moved you. Is there something that started you off on this whole sound journey? I think there are probably a number of things. Um, I just tended to be a very audio, especially music-centric child. And I, I attribute a lot of that to my mother because she was um, a piano player and, I mean, not professionally, but she just loved playing the piano. She was the only one in her family who really played piano um, and it was a huge outlet for her. So from my earliest memory, we always had a piano in the house. And so I think a big part of why it appealed to me was that. And, you know, if I had to be specific, it's going to sound kind of crazy, but I think my earliest inspiration for music and why I was so passionate about music 
was cartoons. Oh, that's and not crazy at all. <laughs> I, I think truly, because I remember trying to convince my mother at, I don't know, I mean, God knows what age I was, four or five, but mm -hmm. trying to convince her to buy the record of certain classical pieces because I heard them on cartoons. And the one that really, really sticks out to me was uh, the Hungarian Rhapsody Number no. 2 by Franz Liszt because um, there's a famous Looney Tunes cartoon called Rhapsody Rabbit where of you know, course. Um, Looney Tunes, Bugs Bunny yeah. is playing that song and a yeah. mouse is in the piano and messing with it and making everything frustrating. Um, and I remember two things. I remember being just gobsmacked at this classical piece of music because it was originally written as a piano only piece, but then uh, later it became an orchestral arrangement and this was the full orchestral arrangement. And I remember thinking, this is like kicking me in the face. Like, I don't know what's happening like as a child. And I could never have described it that way. I just remember being like so tuned in. And then there's a section in it where um, because the mouse starts messing around, Bugs Bunny starts getting into this total honky-tonk jazz riff, like randomly in the middle of the song. And I also remember thinking that was like the coolest thing I'd ever witnessed, like to make this transition from classical into this more pop honky tonk thing back into classical. And I just remember thinking about that all the time. And I remember every time that that particular cartoon would come on, because it was always random what you're catching on TV. Um, when that one came on, I'd be like dead set on watching that. So for whatever reason, that specific thing has always stuck with me. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I think a, a lot of us, our first foray into classical music was Looney Tunes. <laughs> yeah. And they used yeah. a ton of it. You know, Opera, and, too. And, and why not? It was you know public domain, and yep. uh, they had access to it. Yeah, I, I would agree. And I know that there's a ton of literature out there that talks about the power of um, Looney Tunes and Warner Brothers and um, using classical music. But that, that one in particular has always stuck to me. Yeah, yeah, I don't blame you at all. I, that would make a lot of uh, a, a big impression on, on a kid, definitely. And I think it made a big impression on me as well. So I can definitely sympathize. Excellent. <laughs> so, Good. yeah. So, so did that get you interested in sound? Did you start taking piano lessons? Where did you go into music? And and then, like, how did that transition into advertising? Because that's quite the transition. <laughs> oh, boy. Okay. There's it's a, a big question. Of, there, you know, there's, there's like <laughs> three or four questions in there, but that's okay. I think, okay. I, I think, I think I've got it. So okay. um, definitely that informed my desire to continue to play piano because my, my mother as part of what I already described, she you know, sat me down when I was probably three and said, you're going to start learning to play piano. And I, I remember being miserable um, because as that age, you just wanted to play. You didn't want to sit and play a piano. Plus it was like, you know, the specific drills you had to do and say, oh, you know, you just wanted to make yeah. noise. But once I started to hear things and make sense of things out in the world, I was like, what if I could make that? And so that was a, I remember a little bit of a light bulb moment of like, wait, I can do some of this stuff that I like. I don't just have to do these drills. Um, and that really kept me going. And then my, my, my mother and her 
Infinite Wisdom made a really good choice in that when I was probably seven, she decided to get away from teaching me because she had been teaching me piano through all these drill books that we all know, recognize, and are horrified by. She decided to uh, have me start playing with a jazz pianist, and he started training me. Uh, and he was like, really, he was playing at clubs in Boston. He was a pretty well-known local um, jazz pianist. And he started teaching me. And of course, he totally changed the way I thought about it because he was coming at it from a, a jazz perspective. He taught me improv. He taught me rhythms. We spent, I remember spending tons of time on rhythm. Um, and it was still tedious. I still didn't love it. But what I noticed is I could go to school and I could sit at the piano at fourth or fifth grade and I could play Herbie Hancock and improv, you know, and people would be like, what is happening? Like, how, what is he doing? I don't understand. So that was, that was really impressive to me. And then I, I think, you know, the other thing I specifically remember along this journey was I was very fascinated and loved a lot of the early to mid eighties analog synth stuff that was happening, especially the very thematic stuff that was happening. So whether that's... Are you talking about David Foster or that well, kind of thing? Well, it could be. I mean, it was like, th I'm thinking about poppy. like, you know, the theme from Knight Rider or like oh, with, you okay. know, Tangerine Dream. and Oh, uh, I love Tangerine Dream. Like I remember Dream. the theme from Street Hawk, which was a total... Yeah. Knight Rider ripoff, but like, I thought it was the coolest thing I'd ever heard. And yeah. you know, the show lasted like six shows, but I didn't care. I was just like, I'm all about the theme. Yeah. Um, and any of that stuff. And so of, of course, you know, Miami vice and, um, the stuff that Harold Faltermeyer was doing and Jan Hammer was doing, mm -hmm. and it was in very much in the popular culture because this stuff was huge. You know, I grew up in a very, very blue collar, paycheck to paycheck, you know, small little ranch house outside of Boston. And I had a phenomenal upbringing. That's not a comment on my, my parents were wonderful. Sure. Um, but you know, there was, you know, the, like the word spoiled that didn't occur to me. It just was not, you know, what happened. And uh, you kind of, it was very much, you get what you get and you don't get upset type of childhood. And I was mostly okay with that, I think. Um, but when it came to music, my mom would find a way. And I remember in 1986, I was really into this whole analog revolution that was happening. And um, I we went down to the local mall and my mom bought me a Juno 106 by Roland, which was a groundbreaking synth at the time. Uh, and then a, a PV keyboard amp that weighed about 100 pounds. I remember we, I had a know, Roland piano myself. Yeah. And we, yeah. we, she bought that for me, which was like absurd. You know, when yeah. I think back, I actually still have the receipt somewhere. Um, <laughs> I should have grabbed it for this podcast because it's somewhere. But anyway, I still have that receipt. And I mean, that was an incredible amount of money for my parents in the mid eighties. Mm -hmm. But, but I had that. And I remember I was again, like the coolest kid because people would come over to my house and want to like listen to the, and he'd be like, wait, wait, play the next sound. And what does that do? And you know, it was, it was like a game, but to me, it wasn't a game. It was like super serious. And I always tried to recreate whatever I could to the best of my ability, find the right sounds. You could program sounds in that synth. So I started finding my, I remember I really wanted to play jump by Van Halen and there was not a sound anywhere that sounded like that. So I actually made one. It was uh Patch number 54B, I still remember, wow. okay. um, because I used it so much. 
Um, I remember playing that song too. Yeah. I mean, that was like, you know, there was definitely a, if you were learning piano or playing piano in the mid eighties, there huge. were, there were the classics Like we all had to learn imagine by John Lennon. We all had to learn, um, color my world by Chicago. You know, there was just like the, like the things that we all had to learn. I was doing um, Nadia's theme, I think. That yeah. Nadia's like theme was, a yeah. big, oh my gosh. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> yeah. I don't ever want to play that again, No, <laughs> but that was a big thing. And then my, I remember the follow-up to that was she bought me the, um, the Roland, uh, I think it was the TR 80. No, it wasn't the 808, the 505 drum machine, which I know now is like iconic. Um, but at the time it was just like, I just wanted drums and there really wasn't a way to play drums on the keyboard. So I had this drum machine and again, I would have kids come over and I would pre-program and I would just play these crazy eighties drum beats. And then I'd play on top of it. And it was like the coolest thing ever. So it always became this really important thing to me to, Mm -hmm. and I couldn't describe it in any way professionally at all. I mean, I was just a kid, but I was thinking about this, like, I don't know. I, I assume some kids were like super into BMX bikes or so, you know, so, like this was like my thing. Um, and I think again, that just really helped push me into that world. Now I have to fast forward considerably <laughs> yes. to get into how this translated into music for brands and music for advertising and, and what I do now. I mean, really to be, to be honest, I didn't know that that was even a job. Um, and I, I, I imagine at that point, especially, I don't think a lot of people, I think until Charlie Sheen and two and a half men, I don't think most people even knew that was a job. Um, because that's what people say to me now. They're like, Oh, like Charlie Sheen. I'm like, no, it's nothing like that, but sure. You know, you can, if that helps you understand it, um, you know, that's, that's like saying, yeah, like, Oh, you're a bartender, like Sam Malone from cheers. That's exactly what you're like. And your, your day to day is like, right. That's it's a like, little different yeah, it's, and it's pretty varied. <laughs> Um, from person to person, but anyway, I, um, going to college, I actually, I knew I wanted to do something creative, um, which was very confusing, but, uh, encouraged by my parents. And I really was uh, stuck between music, which I loved obviously, and, and film and film production and filmmaking. Cause I was also a big movie geek, you know, as well. And, um, I ended up going down the film production path because I just didn't understand how to get a job in music. I was like, I just wasn't that good. Like I was pretty good, but not that good, you know, and I didn't want to start playing at bars. And I was like, uh, it just doesn't, that didn't interest me. So I went down the film production route, um, which went pretty well for me until, um, nine 11 and then everything stopped and there was no work. Uh, and at that point I had my first, child who was just a baby. So I was like, I got to figure out what to do here. So, um, I got an opportunity to go work at it. My first ad agency, actually, ironically, my only ad agency, but, um, it was an old friend I knew from production. He worked there and, um, he called me and said, I heard you were looking for something steady. And I said, yeah, I kind of need it. And he said, why don't you come work here at the ad agency? And I had never thought of that before, but I said, all right, I'll give it a shot. So I went to the ad agency and it was there that I learned that there were companies that made music just for commercials. And I just remember thinking that's bonkers. Like, and, and also why I'd never thought about that. Like, where did I think this yeah. music came from? Like, I, I never thought about that. I was just like, it was just there. Um, 
And that so when really... they invited you to come work at the ad agency, did they invite you as a sound person or nope. as an ad guy? No, it was a, well, it was my job. My very first job there was a, as an assistant producer. Okay. Um, and that was because, you know, I had worked in film production for at that point, probably uh, five years ish, I think. Um, so I had all that experience being on set, working in production. And now, of course, production at an agency is very different in most ways to on-set production. But the concept of just getting a job done, solving problems is is still the same. Um, I just had to relearn. So for me, the first year at the agency was like going back to school. It was, you know, all I knew was being on set. So I was like, I knew everything about the set, all the roles, what needed to happen. But you get to the ad agency and you go from, you know, a piece of paper that says, make this commercial, here's your budget, here's your, your strategy, um, all the way to getting on air. So there's a ton before and after the actual shoot that I learned. Um, so it had nothing to do with music. Although while I was there, because I'm, I guess, who I am, I did start to become a default resource for a lot of people at the agency who would come to me and say, hey we need music for this. What do you think? Or, Hey, uh, which music company is really good at this type of thing? Cause I was always in that, always listening. Um, and that's what led me to start to think maybe I could make this a job for me. Are you looking for ways to improve your company's or podcast's impact? You'd be surprised how powerful the use of an intentional audio branding strategy can be. Want to know more? I have a free downloadable PDF that gives you my five tips for implementing an intentional audio strategy at voiceoversandvocals.com slash audio dash branding dash strategy. That location does ask to put you on a mailing list just to send you updates on when the new podcasts come out. But if you really don't want to give your email out, I understand. Just contact me directly. My email is all over my website and I'll make sure you get that PDF without needing to sign up anywhere. If you do sign up, though, you also get access to a resources section called The Studio, where I have videos, white papers and PDFs, discounts from my guests, and snippets of audio from my guests that no one else gets to hear. So maybe it's worth your while. Totally up to you. And of course, if you're looking for voiceovers, you can get in touch with me about that, too. Now, back to the podcast. So you weren't originally hired there to do sound, but you nope. ended up... <laughs> that's where you ended up. Did, yeah. Was it was it more than music? Was it just figuring out the music, or was there also other sounds involved? That's a great question. There was other sound involved, but you know that happened really by default of the job because I, at the time mm. I was working primarily on McDonald's. That was one of the big accounts at this agency, and mm -hmm. um, they just you know as you can imagine did a ludicrous amount of work, and we did a lot of radio. So when we did radio. I would be the one booking the session at the audio company, mm -hmm. going to the session. So I was there involved with, now I wasn't doing any of this on a technical level. They, we, they had their own engineer and their own talent. Um, but I learned a ton just by being at hours and hours and days and days of sessions, listening in, hearing the problems, watching what they're doing. And again, interestingly enough, as I watched people, you know, dig into pro tools and create and do this, it still, it, it didn't interest me enough to say, 
oh, wait, I want to go now be an engineer and learn Pro Tools. It's funny how the, I, you would think maybe that would happen, but oh, I don't it, know. Didn't, <laughs> it didn't translate to me that way. It was more yeah. like, I want to understand how they do it and what they do so that I can manage that process better on a creative level, just okay. to understand like, well, why does it take so long to do that? How, yeah. how does sound design work? Why you know, just general things doing? like that. Um, so I learned a lot about audio post uh, especially for commercials by watching that happen mm-hmm. as opposed to the music thing, which was really a kind of a very separate thing. Yeah. So you've been doing that for a long time now. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I <laughs> okay. left the agency to go to my first music company in 2005. Okay. So yeah, it's been, it's been a minute. Uh, yeah. That's, that's a minute. <laughs> yeah. So you've seen a lot of this audio post change over the years. How how has it changed since 2005? I mean, it has. Um, I mean, I can talk about it mostly through the lens of um, of music because that's ninety mm-hmm. percent of what my company does. Um, but then I can, I can I can definitely talk about the audio post thing too, especially more recently. Mm-hmm. Um, but in terms of you know music and music for branding and music, it, it changed so much because when I first started, everything was very specialized. So I worked at a music company who created bespoke music for agencies for brands with very specific briefs, very specific things that they wanted. Um, and I think that that was true for a little while, but then 2008 uh, with the recession, everything kind of got mm. flipped. Um, you know, reality TV flipped everything. So all of a sudden, it was more. It was it. It became more about catalog music and about pre-existing music, and less about the creation of completely custom music. And I think part of that was. I think it's three reasons, really. I mean, I'm, there's probably 20, but three that I definitely <laughs> know. Part of that was just um, access and quality. So the catalogs went from back in the, when I first left, you know, stock music was like a dirty word. It was like, oh God, if you have to use stock, it's just going to be crap and sound like every corporate video ever. Um, but, you know, especially thanks to the recession, a lot of really, really good composers got laid off and they needed a way to make money. So they were throwing their music into these catalogs and suddenly the catalogs by osmosis just became better and better and better. Um, so the quality was better. The amount of stuff being made, you know, started to double, triple, quadruple. And you know, oh, yeah. now it's ludicrous how content much content is, yeah, is being huge because so, of social media and exactly, all sorts of, exactly. Yeah. So the amount of music needed had to just blow up. And then I think the third reason is, you know, the people that are actually making the content, the creative people that are making the content, they're, in many cases, they're they're younger, they're a lot younger than me. Mm-hmm. And I think that they grew up in a world of Spotify and Pandora and iTunes. And so they were able to, their mindset when it came to music was not, let's make a thing. It was, let's just find a thing. Let's just mm-hmm. curate because I'm used to going through playlists. And, you know, that um, shifted everything. It shifted everything in my business. It shifted everything in the world. Um, and that continues to happen. You know, I mean, yeah, TikTok changed the game again. Sure. You know, and yeah. then something else will do it again in two or three years. Yeah. So 
As far as an agency that does music for this kind of thing, do you find that there is a market for you to create specific things for a campaign? Or oh, yeah. Thankfully, they... that is still a thing. Yeah. I think I'd be really sad if that just completely went away. And we we dabbled as a company. We talked about, you know, we were watching these other catalog companies just just blow up, you know, mm -hmm. like 10 times their billings in a year and, and people like... You know, suddenly they had seventy employees. <laughs> I was like, "Well, Epidemic Sound, I know." Well, Epidemic is one of like the new YouTube, ones, right? right? And yeah. a lot of them, you know, I mean, to be fair, I mean, as I learned and I dug in, a lot of them were were backed and had funding, and you know, that certainly helps. Major players. Um, I mean, YouTube's pretty big. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but you know, we thought about should we lean more towards that um, model, but we really just collectively said no. You know, we don't want to do that. Um, it just didn't feel as creative. It feels really like you're just creating a commodity and you're trying to sell as many as you can. And, yeah. Um, and I get it. And we want to stay open and, um, you know, stay successful. But we really love the creation part of it and the partnership and the strategy. So we still do a lot of original music, thankfully. And, you know, with, I'd say the biggest clients for that are probably Progressive. We do a ton of original music content for Progressive. Um, Coles, um, Hormel, which seems like an odd brand to do. Yeah. We do a lot of meat and bean sure. products, you know, Why not? Um, because the agency trusts us as a company and they do like to make stuff. And a lot of times they want something very specific and therefore it's better to make it than to just go through, you know, 10,000 tracks to try to find it. Well, that way it's unique to them. I Correct. mean, if you're talking about an audio brand, which is what we talk about here, yeah. yep. <laughs> you're talking about something that no one else can have. So it Correct. makes a lot a lot more sense to actually have something specifically made for your company than to try and find it on a music, a license-free music directory and then have your competitor pick the same piece of music. Well, like, right. And that's something, you know, we've used certainly as a selling point, mm -hmm. which is, you, you know, you, you can spend a hundred bucks, you can spend 50, like it's crazy, you know, how inexpensive a lot of the catalog oh, yeah. music is. You can spend very, very little and money. And they're good too. Like yeah, I will not, it is good. I'm not that's saying, the thing. I can't, yeah. I can't talk about quality anymore. No, um, not at all. I mean, some of it maybe, but in general, it's like, it's so much better than it used to be, but they are, they're called non-exclusive libraries for a reason. You know, the, the model works as far as I can tell the model works with, you know, if they can sell a track a hundred times in a month, it's they're it's success for them where we don't think about that way at all. We just think about the best track for the right thing. But because of that, if you're selling that track a hundred times, it, it has to be non-exclusive. So you could be this brand and put your commercial out and then three days later hear the same piece of music on somebody else's commercial. You could see it on the same corporate video, the same piece of social media content. And, and for the most part, I find brands don't really care, uh, but sometimes they do and, and they, they should. Because also it's like, well, what is... What is that music also on? Is it something that's a com direct competitor? Is it something that yeah. is is a problem for you? Like, is it a, whether it's an alcohol thing or a political campaign, who knows? Like something that you don't agree with. Um, you just got to deal with that. For a hundred bucks, that's, that's what you get. Where, you know, we can focus on completely exclusive content 
um, completely exclusive music. We can make something that is uh, completely unique for that brand. We can also take anything from our catalog because we have three or 4,000 tracks now that we've made over the years that are in our catalog, but they're exclusive to us. They're only with us and our composers can customize them any way you want. So even if you find something in there you really like, we can very quickly make it longer, make it shorter, add guitar, take out the drums, whatever you need us to do. And in that way, still giving you something completely custom, but without quite the amount of work that would go into starting from nothing. Cause that's usually the, the most work is trying to figure out what the heck people want and mm-hmm. making stuff and then remaking until they're like, yes, I want, that thing right there. That's what I've been wanting. Yeah, yeah, that makes a huge amount of sense. And along those lines, I want to ask you what it's like writing something that's for a 60 second ad as opposed to a seven second TikTok. Like, how does that change? That's a great question. Um, I think, boy, I mean, there's a lot of answers to that. I I think (laughs) the the number one, yeah, I mean, the most important answer is to know what you're writing for. Because if you're writing for a 60-second piece, let's say it's even for, we'll go big, we'll say it's a national campaign. We're actually working on a couple right now that are 60 seconds, big national campaign. You're really, really focused on that story, which is long in today's standards, 60 seconds, a long commercial these days, a long anything these days. Um, And... That needs to tell the story for the entire, it's got to have chapters, it's got to have dynamics, it's got to have, um, it tends to almost always start small because it needs somewhere to go. That's what the audience expects if you're being told a story that it has to, you know, go somewhere. Um, but for a seven second or even a, even a 15 second TikTok, that, that all goes out the door. It, it's, it's, typically two to three seconds of tonal weirdness or intro or something. And then you've got like a sound or a moment or something that kind of like makes you go, what? And then the beat drops and it comes in full up, like straight to the chorus, straight to the biggest part of the track. And that's a dynamic difference from what is typically kind of branding music because also TikTok is, even though, yes, you see stuff for brands, you see ads, of course, you see tons of them. But TikTok at the end of the day is really just like a, a media outlet, right? That's user generated. It's for entertainment. Or in this case, it's it's brand entertainment. So if the brand's doing their job right, a 15-second TikTok doesn't look like an ad at all. It's somebody dancing in their bedroom or somebody, you know, sitting on top of a car. I, who knows what? It's insane things, right? Sure. People jumping off an airplane, uh, dressed like a chicken, you know, I, whatever. And you have to, you know, the, so the music has to completely rethink what it wants to be. It has to think what it wants to be as an arrangement, as how much hits you in the face, um, all these different things. So it's a totally different way of thinking when you're creating that music. Thanks for taking the time to listen. Quick question. Do you know anyone else who could benefit from hearing more about how powerful sound can be? If so, would you mind sharing this podcast with them? It would mean so much to me. Now I'll stop interrupting and let you get back to the show. Are there any seven second spots that you have done that you've been particularly proud of? I'm I'm curious. <laughs> I mean, the thing that we, weirdly enough, that had the most 
views um, was we did something. It wasn't seven seconds. It was 15 because a lot of times with TikTok, you start with 15s. They they will give you like, you know, users could then be like, well, I only want mine to be eight. But you tend to start with okay. a 15, right? And then you reuse mm -hmm. and, and tweak that. Um, we did something for um, Oikos yogurt. Um and the idea it was a hashtag challenge with like how many bags you can carry in at once. Um, and we did this really cool piece of like kind of pop hip hop. Uh, it fits very much into that world where it comes in and then it really like, comes in with like this little like happy little thing. And then the beat really drops. Um, and last time I checked, it got like 5.7 billion views or something. Wow. Crazy. Which, <laughs> yeah. I mean, and that's... Uh, to be fair, it's not I mean, like, over it's not like, time, it's I'm not like YouTube because YouTube is, you know, like you, you can't even really get to billions of views. I mean, I don't think you can, at least. I've never um, seen it, but yeah. <laughs> but TikTok's different because of all the sharing and, and resharing and, you know, all that yeah. type of thing. So that's a big part of it. Um, so I'm sure that there are, you know, kind of reasons why it's that the number is that high. But it was Clearly just it interesting to see. You know, just to see how many people and and it wasn't, of course, just the music. It was the idea and the concept. People were like, oh, I want to do that, too. And all my friends did it. And that's the whole that's the whole concept. The whole concept of advertising on TikTok is just eyeballs, eyeballs, eyeballs. You want more sure. people seeing it. But yeah. because it is a very audio centric, uh, if the music was terrible, I do believe it would not have hit that. You know, the music just really worked because it was super energizing and super in your face. Um We've done, I mean, I remember really early on, we did an Instagram campaign for Progressive where um, they were leading up to a spot where it was going to be LeBron James and Flo in the same spot. And it was this whole thing they called it Flo Bron. And he like dressed up like Flo. And we did a teaser for that, which went up onto online and it went into Instagram. And it was basically, you know, LeBron and the, he was in the locker room getting dressed up like Flo, but it was all set up like this big, you know, set up video, like LeBron's hitting the court, but he's like putting the wig on. It was very strange. And we did this big epic, you know, ESPN promo piece of music, you know, big horns and everything. And uh, that was a lot of fun. But, you know, it, it's just a, I find that a lot of times the stuff that ends up being a six we tend to start with the longer form. So most of our brands would come to us and say, Hey, we have a series of thirties we're making for this new campaign. And then once we agree on it, everybody's happy with it. The track is perfect. Then they go, Oh, we also need a 15. We also need a six. And we'll, we'll, of but we'll be mindful of that because six seconds of music is almost nothing. Like it's, you know, you barely get. It's like a, a mnemonic. Of, yeah, exactly. I mean, it's, yeah. you, you get a couple of chord changes and, and that's pretty much it. So, you know, a lot of times if I know it's going to be a six, we will try to be mindful about that when it comes to tempo, how many chord changes. Because if we have a long phrase that, you know, where the chord changes is this eight or nine chord changes before it yeah. resolves again, it's like you're never going to get that in six seconds. So we mm -hmm. try to, you know, just change that in terms of how we think about it. So it does make you rethink about what you're making. This has been part one of our interview. I hope you'll tune in next week for part two. Well, that's the end of this episode. Thanks for listening. And if you like what you heard, why not tell a friend about this podcast? It's available in all the usual locations. Until next time.